Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra, thank you for listening. Um, okay, so because I promised everybody that I would be completely open and transparent about this whole thing, um, last, uh, last, the beginning of last week, I, I woke up about five in the morning, uh, just feeling, uh, feeling very nauseated and spent about an hour throwing up and, um, finally managed to get out of that and, and laid down. And as I was laying there, I started getting real shaky and shivery and I checked my temperature, had a fever and I was, uh, it was 99 degrees and I was like, well, great. Now I've got a fever. So this could just be anything. Um, so I, uh, found a place to get a COVID test. Uh, I work in a COVID testing facility, but they're way, but they live, but they work like usually South of Atlanta and I am North of Atlanta. Uh, so I, um, I got uh, I got one near here and got it and uh, got it taken care of. Before just before I left to go take the test, my my fever had spiked up to 102, so that was really fun and exciting. And then I got uh, I got the test, um, came back home, checked my temperature again, it had dropped down to 101. And throughout the course of the rest of the day, it continued dropping down, and um, it was pretty much back to normal by the end of the night. The test results came back a couple days later. I was negative. So that was fun. Um, but, uh, um, but I was, uh, there, there was a little bit of a scare here earlier this week. So (sighs) I hope everybody out there is doing well. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you, uh, to Chris Cowley and Eric Brown for, uh, kicking into my Patreon. I really appreciate it. I, I appreciate the support. Um, it really means a lot to me. Thank you guys so much. Um, and, uh, just know that I know it's a really stressful time and everybody is under a lot of pressure. And I know it, if you're looking for a job, it can be hard to find a job and in your job may not be great. And you may be looking at all sorts of, you know, worries and stress, but I want you to know no matter what happens that you are important and you matter and you are stronger than you think you are. Um, if you feel that you're in crisis, please find somebody to talk to. Um, because you are important. All right. Um, let's get on with the episode. Five. For a man of his years and experience, only a canny Scott, perhaps, grounded in common sense and established in logic, could have preserved even that measure of balance that this youth, somehow or other, did manage to preserve through the whole adventure. Otherwise, two things he presently noticed while forging pluckily ahead must have sent him headlong back to the comparative safety of his tent, instead of only making his hands close more tightly upon the rifle stock, while his heart, trained for the wee kirk, sent a wordless prayer ringing its way to heaven. Both tracks, he saw, had undergone a change, and this change, so far as it concerned the footsteps of the man, was in some undecipherable manner appalling. It was in the bigger tracks he first noticed this, and for a long time he could not quite believe his eyes. Was it the blown leaves that produced odd effects of light and shade, or that the dry snow, drifting like finely ground rice about the edges, cast shadows and highlights? Or was it actually the fact that the great marks had become faintly colored? For round about the deep plunging holes of the animal there now appeared a mysterious reddish tinge that was more like an effect of light than of anything that dyed the substance of the snow itself. Every mark had it, and had it increasingly, this indistinct, fiery tinge 
that painted a new touch of ghastliness into the picture. But when, wholly unable to explain or to credit it, he turned his attention to the other tracks to discover if they too bore similar witness, he noticed that these had meanwhile undergone a change that was infinitely worse and charged with far more horrible suggestion. For in the last hundred yards or so, he saw that they had grown gradually into the semblance of the parent tread. Imperceptibly, the change had come about, yet unmistakably. It was hard to see where the change first began. The result, however, was beyond question. Smaller, neater, more cleanly molded, they formed now an exact and careful duplicate of the larger tracks beside them. The feet that produced them had, therefore, also changed, and something in his mind reared up with loathing and with terror as he saw it. Simpson, for the first time, hesitated, then, ashamed of his alarm and indecision, took a few hurried steps ahead. The next instant stopped dead in his tracks. Immediately in front of him, all signs of the trail ceased. Both tracks came to an abrupt end. On all sides, for a hundred yards and more, he searched in vain for the least indication of their continuance. There was nothing. The trees were very thick just there, big trees, all of them, spruce, cedar, hemlock. There was no underbrush. He stood looking about him, all distraught, bereft of any power of judgment. Then he set to work to search again, and again, and yet again, but always with the same result. Nothing. The feet that printed the surface of the snow thus far had now, apparently, left the ground. And it was in that moment of distress and confusion that the whip of terror laid its most nicely calculated lash about his heart. It dropped with deadly effect upon the sorest spot of all, completely unnerving him. He had been secretly dreading all the time that it would come, and come it did. Far overhead, muted by great height and distance, strangely thinned and wailing, he heard the crying voice of Defago, the guide. The sound dropped upon him out of that still, wintry sky with an effect of dismay and terror unsurpassed. The rifle fell to his feet. He stood motionless an instant, listening, as it were, with his whole body, then staggered back against the nearest tree for support, disorganized hopelessly in mind and spirit. To him, in that moment, it seemed the most shattering and dislocating experience he had ever known, so that his heart emptied itself of all feeling whatsoever as by a sudden draft. Oh! Oh, this fiery height! Oh, my feet of fire! My burning feet of fire! ran in far-beseeching accents of indescribable appeal this voice of anguish down the sky. Once it called, then silence through all the listening wilderness of trees. And Simpson, scarcely knowing what he did, presently found himself running wildly to and fro, searching, calling, tripping over roots and boulders, and flinging himself in a frenzy of undirected pursuit after the caller. Behind the screen of memory and emotion with which experience veiled events, he plunged, distracted and half-deranged, picking up false lights like a ship at sea, terror in his eyes and heart and soul. For the panic of the wilderness had called to him in that far voice, the power of untamed distance, the enticement of the desolation that destroys. He knew in that moment all the pains of someone hopelessly and irretrievably lost, 
suffering the lust and travail of a soul in the final loneliness. A vision of Defago, eternally hunted, driven and pursued across the skyey vastness of those ancient forests, fled like a flame across the dark ruin of his thoughts. It seemed ages before he could find anything in the chaos of his disorganized sensations to which he could anchor himself steady for a moment and think. The cry was not repeated. His own hoarse calling brought no response. The inscrutable forces of the wild had summoned their victim beyond recall and held him fast. Yet he searched and called, it seems, for hours afterwards, for it was late in the afternoon when at length he decided to abandon a useless pursuit and returned to his camp on the shores of Fifty Island Water. Even then, he went with reluctance, that crying voice still echoing in his ears. With difficulty, he found his rifle and the homeward trail. The concentration necessary to follow the badly blazed trees and abiding hunger that gnawed helped to keep his mind steady. Otherwise, he admits, the temporary aberration he had suffered might have prolonged to the point of positive disaster. Gradually, the ballast shifted back again, and he regained something that approached his normal equilibrium. But for all that, the journey through the gathering dusk was miserably haunted. He heard innumerable following footsteps, voices that laughed and whispered, and saw figures crouching behind trees and boulders, making signs to one another for a concerted attack the moment he had passed. The creeping murmur of the wind made him start and listen. He went stealthily, trying to hide where possible and making as little sound as he could. The shadows of the woods, hitherto protective or covering merely, had now become menacing, challenging, and the pageantry in his frightened mind masked a host of possibilities that were all the more ominous for being obscure. The presentiment of a nameless doom lurked ill-concealed behind every detail of what had happened. It was really admirable how he emerged victor in the end. Men of riper powers and experience might have come through the ordeal with less success. He had himself tolerably well in hand, all things considered, and his plan of action proves it. Sleep being absolutely out of the question, and traveling an unknown trail in the darkness equally impracticable, he sat up the whole of that night, rifle in hand, before a fire he never for a single moment allowed to die down. The severity of the haunted vigil marked his soul for life, but it was successfully accomplished, and with the very first signs of dawn, he set forth upon the long return journey to the home camp to get help. As before, he left a written note to explain his absence and to indicate where he had left a plentiful cache of food and matches, though he had no expectation that any human hands would find them. How Simpson found his way alone by the lake and the forest might well make a story in itself, for to hear him tell it is to know the passionate loneliness of soul that a man can feel when the wilderness holds him in the hollow of its illimitable hand and laughs. It is also to admire his indomitable pluck. He claims no skill, declaring that he followed the almost invisible trail mechanically and without thinking, and this doubtless is the truth. He relied upon the guiding of the unconscious mind, which is instinct. Perhaps, too, some sense of orientation known to animals and primitive man may have helped as well, for through all that tangled region, he succeeded in reaching the exact spot where Defago had hidden the canoe nearly three days before, with the remark, 
strike due west across the lake into the sun to find the camp. There was not much sun left to guide him, but he used his compass to the best of his ability, embarking in the frail craft for the last twelve miles of his journey with a sensation of immense relief that the forest was at last behind him. And fortunately, the water was calm. He took his line across the center of the lake instead of coasting round the shores for another twenty miles. Fortunately, too, the other hunters were back. The light of their fires furnished a steering point without which he might have searched all night long for the actual position of the camp. It was close upon midnight all the same when his canoe grated on the sandy cove, and Hank, Punk, and his uncle, disturbed in their sleep by his cries, ran quickly down and helped a very exhausted and broken specimen of Scotch humanity over the rocks toward a dying fire. 6. The sudden entrance of his prosaic uncle into this world of wizardry and horror that had haunted him without interruption now for two days and two nights, had the immediate effect of giving to the affair an entirely new aspect. The sound of that crisp, Hello, my boy, and what's up now? And the grasp of that dry and vigorous hand introduced another standard of judgment. A revulsion of feeling washed through him. He realized that he had let himself go rather badly. He even felt vaguely ashamed of himself. The native hard-headedness of his race reclaimed him. And this, doubtless, explains why he found it so hard to tell that group round the fire everything. He told enough, however, for the immediate decision to be arrived at, that a relief party must start at the earliest possible moment, and that Simpson, in order to guide it capably, must first have food and, above all, sleep. Dr. Cathcart, observing the lad's condition more shrewdly than his patient knew, gave him a very slight injection of morphine. For six hours, he slept like the dead. From the description carefully written out afterwards by this student of divinity, it appears that the account he gave to the astonished group omitted sundry vital and important details. He declares that with his uncle's wholesome, matter-of-fact countenance staring him in the face, he simply had not the courage to mention them. Thus, all the search party gathered, it would seem, was that Defago had suffered in the night an acute and inexplicable attack of mania, had imagined himself called by someone or something, and had plunged into the bush after it without food or rifle, where he must die a horrible and lingering death by cold and starvation unless he could be found and rescued in time. In time, moreover, meant at once. In the course of the following day, however, they were off by seven, leaving Punk in charge with instructions to have food and fire always ready. Simpson found it possible to tell his uncle a good deal more of the story's true inwardness without divining that it was drawn out of him, as a matter of fact, by a very subtle form of cross-examination. By the time they reached the beginning of the trail, where the canoe was laid up against the return journey, he had mentioned how Defago spoke vaguely of something he called a wendigo, how he cried in his sleep, how he imagined an unusual scent about the camp, and had betrayed other symptoms of mental excitement. He also admitted the bewildering effect of that extraordinary odor upon himself, pungent and acrid, like the odor of lions, and by the time they were within an easy hour of Fifty Island Water, he had let slip the further fact, a foolish avowal of his own hysterical condition, as he felt afterwards, that he had heard the vanished guide call for help. He omitted the singular phrases used, 
for he simply could not bring himself to repeat the preposterous language. Also, while describing how the man's footsteps in the snow had gradually assumed an exact miniature likeness of the animal's plunging tracks, he left out the fact that they measured a wholly indescribable distance. It seemed a question, nicely balanced between individual pride and honesty, what he should reveal and what suppress. He mentioned the fiery tinge in the snow, for instance, yet shrank from telling that body and bed had been partly dragged out of the tent. With the net result that Dr. Cathcart, adroit psychologist that he fancied himself to be, had assured him clearly enough exactly where his mind, influenced by loneliness, bewilderment, and terror, had yielded to the strain and invited delusion. While praising his conduct, he managed at the same time to point out where, when, and how his mind had gone astray. He made his nephew think himself finer than he was by judicious praise, yet more foolish than he was by minimizing the value of the evidence. Like many another materialist, that is, he lied cleverly on the basis of insufficient knowledge because the knowledge supplied seemed to his own particular intelligence inadmissible. The spells of these terrible solitudes, he said, cannot leave any mind untouched, any mind that is possessed of the higher imaginative qualities. It has worked upon yours exactly as it worked upon my own when I was your age. The animal that haunted your little camp was undoubtedly a moose, for the belling of a moose may have sometimes a very peculiar quality of sound. The colored appearance of the big tracks was obviously a defect of vision in your own eyes produced by excitement. The size and stretch of the tracks we shall prove when we come to them. But the hallucination of an audible voice, of course, is one of the commonest forms of delusion due to mental excitement. An excitement, my dear boy, perfectly excusable, and, let me add, wonderfully controlled by you under the circumstances. For the rest, I am bound to say, you have acted with a splendid courage, for the terror of feeling oneself lost in this wilderness is nothing short of awful, and had I been in your place, I don't for a moment believe I could have behaved with one quarter of your wisdom and decision. The only thing I find it uncommonly difficult to explain is that damned odor. It made me feel sick, I assure you, declared his nephew, positively dizzy. His uncle's attitude of calm omniscience, merely because he knew more psychological formulae, made him slightly defiant. It was so easy to be wise in the explanation of an experience one has not personally witnessed. A kind of desolate and terrible odor is the only way I can describe it, he concluded, glancing at the features of the quiet, unemotional man beside him. I can only marvel, was the reply, that under the circumstances it did not seem to you even worse. The dry words Simpson knew hovered between the truth and his uncle's interpretation of the truth. And so, at last, they came to the little camp and found the tent still standing, the remains of the fire, and the piece of paper pinned to a stake beside it, untouched. The cache, poorly contrived by inexperienced hands, however, had been discovered and opened by muskrats, mink, and squirrel. The matches lay scattered about the opening, but the food had been taken to the last crumb. "'Well, fellers, he ain't here,' exclaimed Hank loudly after his fashion, "'and that's as certain as the coal supply down below. "'But where he's got you by this time is about as uncertain "'as the trade in crowns and t'other place.' "'The presence of a divinity student was no barrier to his language at such a time, "'though for the reader's sake it may be severely edited. "'I propose,' he added, "'that we start out at once and hunt for him like hell.' The gloom of Defago's probable fate, 
oppressed the whole party with a sense of dreadful gravity the moment they saw the familiar signs of recent occupancy. Especially the tent, with the bed of balsam branches still smoothed and flattened by the pressure of his body, seemed to bring his presence near to them. Simpson, feeling vaguely as if his world were somehow at stake, went about explaining particulars in a hushed tone. He was much calmer now, though overwearied with the strain of his many journeys. His uncle's method of explaining, explaining away, rather, the details still fresh in his haunted memory, helped, too, to put ice upon his emotions. "'And that's the direction he ran off in,' he said to his two companions, pointing in the direction where the guide had vanished that morning in the gray dawn. "'Straight down there he ran, like a deer, in between the birch and the hemlock.' Hank and Dr. Cathcart exchanged glances. "'And it was about two miles down there in a straight line,' continued the other, speaking with something of the former terror in his voice, "'that I followed his trail to the place where it, it stopped, dead.' "'Where you heard him calling and caught the stench and all the rest of the wicked entertainment,' cried Hank with a volubility that betrayed his keen distress. "'And where your excitement overcame you to the point of producing illusions,' added Dr. Cathcart under his breath, yet not so low that his nephew did not hear it. It was early in the afternoon, for they had traveled quickly, and there were still a good two hours of daylight left. Dr. Cathcart and Hank lost no time in beginning the search— but Simpson was too exhausted to accompany them. They would follow the blazed marks on the trees and, where possible, his footsteps. Meanwhile, the best thing he could do was to keep a good fire going and rest. But after something like three hours' search, the darkness already down, the two men returned to camp with nothing to report. Fresh snow had covered all signs, and though they had followed the blazed trees to the spot where Simpson had turned back, they had not discovered the smallest indication of a human being or, for that matter, of an animal. There were no fresh tracks of any kind. The snow lay undisturbed. It was difficult to know what best to do, though in reality there was nothing more they could do. They might stay and search for weeks without much chance of success. The fresh snow destroyed their only hope, and they gathered round the fire for supper, a gloomy and despondent party. The facts, indeed, were sad enough, for Defago had a wife at Rat Portage, and his earnings were the family's sole means of support. Now that the whole truth and all its ugliness was out, it seemed useless to deal in further disguise or pretense. They talked openly of the facts and probabilities. It was not the first time, even in the experience of Dr. Cathcart, that a man had yielded to the singular seduction of the solitudes and gone out of his mind. Defago, moreover, was predisposed to something of the sort— for he already had a touch of melancholia in his blood, and his fiber was weakened by bouts of drinking that often lasted for weeks at a time. Something on this trip, one might never know precisely what, had sufficed to push him over the line, that was all. And he had gone, gone off into the great wilderness of trees and lakes to die by starvation and exhaustion. The chances against his finding camp again were overwhelming. The delirium that was upon him would also doubtless have increased, and it was quite likely he might do violence to himself and so hasten his cruel fate. Even while they talked, indeed, the end had probably come. On the suggestion of Hank, his old pal, however, they proposed to wait a little longer and devote the whole of the following day, from dawn to darkness, to the most systematic search they could devise. They would divide the territory between them, 
They discussed their plan in great detail. All that men could do, they would do. And meanwhile, they talked about the particular form in which the singular panic of the wilderness had made its attack upon the mind of the unfortunate guide. Hank, though familiar with the legend in its general outline, obviously did not welcome the turn the conversation had taken. He contributed little, though that little was illuminating, for he admitted that a story ran over all this section of country to the effect that several Indians had seen the Wendigo along the shores of Fifty Island Water in the fall of last year, and that this was the true reason of Defago's disinclination to hunt there. Hank, doubtless, felt that he had, in a sense, helped his old pal to death by over-persuading him. When an Indian goes crazy, he explained, talking to himself more than to the others, it seemed, it's always put that he's seen the Wendigo, and poor old Defago was superstitious down to the very heels. And then Simpson, feeling the atmosphere more sympathetic, told over again the full story of his astonishing tale. He left out no details this time, he mentioned his own sensations and gripping fears. He only omitted the strange language used. But De Fago surely had already told you all these details of the Wendigo legend, my dear fellow, insisted the doctor. I mean, he had talked about it and thus put into your mind the ideas which your own excitement afterwards developed. Whereupon Simpson again repeated the facts. De Fago, he declared, had barely mentioned the beast. He, Simpson, knew nothing of the story, and so far as he remembered, had never even read about it. Even the word was unfamiliar. Of course, he was telling the truth, and Dr. Cathcart was reluctantly compelled to admit the singular character of the whole affair. He did not do this in words so much as in manner, however. He kept his back against a good stout tree. He poked the fire into a blaze the moment it showed signs of dying down. He was quicker than any of them to notice the least sound in the night about them a fish jumping in the lake, a twig snapping in the bush, the dropping of occasional fragments of frozen snow from the branches overhead where the heat loosened them. His voice, too, changed a little in quality, becoming a shade less confident, lower also in tone. Fear, to put it plainly, hovered close about that little camp, and though all three would have been glad to speak of other matters, the only thing they seemed able to discuss was this the source of their fear. They tried other subjects in vain. There was nothing to say about them. Hank was the most honest of the group. He said next to nothing. He never once, however, turned his back to the darkness. His face was always to the forest, and when wood was needed, he didn't go farther than was necessary to get it. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate everybody who comes in every month. Every month? Month? No, it's not month. We don't go months. We do uh, whatever whatever it is. Whatever, whatever the period of time is between one show and the next. Hi. <laughs> I've had a week. Um, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate everybody who comes in week after week and uh, just continues to listen. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for the reviews and the emails. I really appreciate uh, getting and receiving them. I try to respond to every single one. Um, it really means a lot to me. Thank you to the people who have supported me on Patreon. And if you have bought yourself a copy of Into the Black by William Meikle, I hope you have enjoyed it. If you have not bought yourself a copy of Into the Black by William Meikle, go and buy it. You'll enjoy it. Um, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. 
and I think that is about it. Um, I don't really have anything else to say. So uh, have a good have a good week, and I will see you next time. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. The facts indeed were sad enough. For DeFago had a wife at Rat Portage, and his earnings were the family's sole means of support. Now that the whole truth and all its ugliness was out... See, I said Rat Portage, but the city's name is Rat Portage, and I'm going to stick to that. Portage is what you do when you're carrying the boat over the... It probably is Portage. Don't call me out on it.